Hey, it's Bree here. And Alan, your favorite hunter and hippie duo. Uh, in this episode, we we're actually a trio. We had a friend and guest speaker on uh, Jenny Bilski-Smith, uh, who is uh, an intuitive, certified intuitive eating coach, as well published author. Um, you'll hear a lot more. We talk a lot about uh, intuitive eating, uh, the roles that it plays in life, as well as all the things that you might think come along with intuitive eating. Uh, so if you have questions about it, uh, please reach out. Uh, you can reach out to myself or Brie, or uh, you can reach out to Jenny directly. Uh, her website, as well as social media information, is in the episode, as well as in the show notes. And there's a lot that you would also be surprised of with intuitive eating. I think sometimes we have an idea of what that looks like. Um, so you'll definitely have to listen and hear the range of what, what's involved there. Um, as always, and always, a, oh. and always a huge thank you to our, uh, supporters, our listeners, um, everyone tuning in, please don't forget, like subscribe, share as much as possible. Um, a huge thank you to Brianna Cote Photography for doing all of our photos uh, and marketing materials and Allison Band, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N, uh, for our intro and outro music. And with that, enjoy the episode. And we're here. <laughs> we all know how to count. <laughs> Uh, I've already had so much fun. (laughs) Uh, You've had so much fun and you haven't even gotten to the episode yet. Right. Uh, As you listeners might hear, that's a different voice. Uh, We are welcoming a uh, guest today. Uh, after last week's episode, um, we talked a little bit. uh, Bree and I talked a little bit about diet and eating and uh we went down this path of intuitive eating, and I was like, I know an expert. And uh, our, our friend Jenny Bilski-Smith is on with us today, uh, and she is an expert in intuitive eating and many other things. Um, so, yeah, we brought her on. Say hi, Jenny. Hi. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So, so glad to have you. Um, so, uh, do we want, how do we want to start, Bray? Do we want to start with breath or... Um, why don't we hear a little bit about Jenny? Cause this is my first time meeting her and I just want to get to know her. I love it. Let's do it. So, uh, Jenny, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, don't leave out all the good stuff, especially that you are just, uh, have just become a published author. So, but yeah, it's a uh, mic's yours. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, I'm Jenny Bilski Smith and, uh, Right now, I am a certified intuitive eating counselor, and so I meet with clients one-on-one all around the United States, and I'm working on a memoir. I specialize in the intersection between disordered eating, addiction, and generational trauma. So all that really happy stuff, right? Um, but, it, but really, the idea is... Um, where we find our resilience and hope and ultimately heal and restore ourselves. So we all have these paths that we go through and we have these really beautiful tools that we can use to pull us through. 
And uh, so that's my memoir. And Alan mentioned I have a mini publication. It's just a little thing, but uh, it was an essay that don't I wrote. Di- don't discount it. <laughs> Stop discounting it. You're a badass. It's okay. Own that shit. Okay, I'll own it. <laughs> I own it. It's called yeah. Root Shoots and Blooms. It's an anthology. And so I wrote an essay uh, that was inspired by my garden and this beautiful, beautiful bug that I found in it. And I was obsessed with this bug. And I took all these pictures of it and I posted it all over social media. And then everybody's like, it's not your friend, kill it. It's gonna kill your tomatoes. And so it was a tomato horn worm. And apparently these things are terrible for tomato plants. They completely destroy them. But I didn't know that and I could not uh, kill this beautiful thing. And so anyway, you know, the essay is kind of a parallel of, you know, looking at my connection and some of my generational trauma and, and that analogy of, um, you know, the, the roots, our family roots and the shoots, kind of our parents and the bloom us where we are and it all exists as one and, you know, all that fun stuff. And so ultimately, um, in the end, I figure out a way to have the tomato horn worms and the tomatoes. So you, you'll have to check it out. Spoiler alert. <laughs> they can both exist. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. So, it's, But the journey uh, is the fun part. So yeah. Um, yeah, check it out if you're interested. And so what else do I do? Uh, so I, I got a bachelor's degree in nutrition, exercise, and psychology way back forever ago. And the idea was that I wanted to focus on holistic health, but it felt like, you know, a job in health was working at the gym, making these very specific training plans for people, or being a dietitian and writing, you know, prescriptive diets for people and Something about that just didn't appeal to me. And so then I fell into social work and I got a job when I was 21 at a group home with adolescent male sex offenders. And that's how I started my social work journey. And uh, then eventually I landed in child welfare and got a master's degree in social work. And I specialize in trauma and the, um, the way that trauma changes the neurological networking and it, it changes our uh, experience and our perception. But I also, um, having that awareness, understand how we can rebuild those networks and heal them. So that is a lot of, with intuitive eating, it's, it's not about, it's not just about eating. It brings all of this stuff together. So I did child welfare for a while and then um, reached you know, my end with that and decided to move to my next step. And that was to build this business that I have now. It's called Wise Body Physical and Mental Health. And so it just sort of brings it all together. And I also love, love yoga. So I think that we have a lot in common. Um, so I don't know. I think that's the fun stuff, right? And I love baseball, as you guys know. <laughs> I, Should I, I mention it. the I... other thing? <laughs> yeah, <please>. So it's funny we're doing this now. Alan's in Colorado. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and Bree's in Wyoming. But uh, but I uh, the the Diamondbacks in Arizona are beating the Colorado Rockies in baseball as we speak. So 
It's meant to and, be. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is meant to be. It is meant to be for sure. I expect updates throughout the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about generational trauma. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be a happy episode, and I wasn't enough to get into my shit, but I guess not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm. I'm really excited because you say generational trauma mm-hmm. when it comes to food, and I'm like, mm-hmm. and, and like I'm thinking about food, and I'm thinking about how um, my family was around food, um, and very much like. Uh, first off, like, like, you know, grew up in like a Catholic Italian Jewish home. And, um, it was always like, everyone's like force feeding you food. Right. And it's like, eat, eat. Right. My, I remember my great grandmother yelling at like across the table. She was uh, off, off the boat Italian and she didn't speak any English and she would just yell manja, manja, which is eat in Italian. And so, um, yeah, and then the other thing, like, I was always super skinny. I, I still am, but uh, I was always super skinny growing up, and I lived my entire childhood with being told I eat like a bird. And I always fucking hated that. Like, it always pissed me off. So, like, when people, like, comment about, like, the way I eat, it, like, that's, like, one of the things. And, I, and I'm, of course, like, a really picky eater. And so, like, I hear... Like, oh, like you, you barely touched that or whatever. Like I didn't like the food or, you know, and you've been out to eat with me plenty of times, Jenny. Like, I'm pretty sure they fuck up my food every time we go out to eat. <laughs> and, right. Like for me, it's like there's definitely some trauma behind there. So mm-hmm. is that what you're talking about when you talk about generational trauma or and especially specifically when it comes to intuitive eating? Because mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other trauma that we don't need to talk about today. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, in. So what I talk about is a little more global. Um, So just the way that kids sort of absorb their parents' neurological regulation. But as it relates to food, those food stories that we pass on and our experiences with food are so relevant to this. And as kids, that idea of autonomy is really, really important. It's the developmental stage where we're trying to establish our own autonomy. And food is one of the most powerful ways to do that. And so many times that's taken away from us. And so, you know, by people, so we're born intuitive eaters, but sometimes that can get overridden. And so, you know, when people are saying eat, eat, or why are you eating that way? Why are you eating this way? It, mm-hmm. it starts to teach us to override our own intuition and not trust it. And also though, while we're doing that, there's this, this rebel that rises up inside of us. And it says like, fuck that. I don't like that. Don't, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Like don't suppress my little guide here. And so you know, so it gets confusing. And then, um, and, and it's none of your business how I eat, right? It's, it's nobody's right. business how yeah. you eat. You eat in a way that feels good to you. And I, I was in, I actually did struggle with disordered eating. And I, I was so, you know, like, quote unquote, health conscious. And I'll explain to you why I'm putting health in quotes um, mm-hmm. as, as we work through this. But I was always so health conscious and people always commented on my food and they, you know, I was so disciplined and look at what she's eating. And, you know, it was meant to be a compliment, but it made me feel really self-conscious. And so I understand what you're saying with that. I wonder if we might now, do you want me to just sort of explain just kind of in a nutshell what intuitive eating is just so for people that don't understand 
for sure that, that would be great but i, I do want to mm-hmm. add something right so you mentioned right like you you struggled with disordered eating um I'm just going to go out on a limb, right? We have two women on this call. Uh, I think it's a safe assumption because I've even talked with other friends about this. Women particularly have a higher rate of this probably. Uh, I don't know if you could speak to specific facts, but um, right, like I, I think it's a safe assumption that most women have some sort of experience with disordered eating. Is that fair? Like a fair statement? I, I don't, but... You don't? No. Okay. But I'm not saying most women don't, like right. most isn't all, so... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is true that in our society, um, many times, well, there's a societal message. And so Mm -hmm. there are ways to override that societal message by, you know, having healthy role models. And so, Brie, you know, maybe I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But it is true that in our society, um, women are oftentimes. Uh, taught to value themselves based on external qualities, the way that they look, the way that their body is shaped. And men learn also to value women for their external Mm -hmm. qualities. And it's not like, it's not the type of thing where um, a man should be blamed for that. It's the water that we're all raised in. We're all sort of given this narrative mm-hmm. um, through, you know, popular culture and media. And, and a lot of times, you know, parents who are just, who, you know, I've never met a parent who didn't want to do the best that they could for their kids. Yeah. So they don't mean any harm. Um, but a lot of times these messages come through parents. Um, and I know for, for me, I was raised in a my dad was a competitive bike racer and I was raised in a really, really health conscious family. So we didn't eat any sugar. Um, we never had cereal. We never had soda. Um, and it was almost like it was this, it was like a religion. It was this anchoring set of beliefs for us. And what I learned, I remember when I was like five years old, um, I went to the bank with my mom and back then the bankers used to give you a sucker. And, uh, and so, you know, I was like watching the banker to see, is she going to put it in there? Is she going to give me the sucker? And I was so excited and, and she plopped it in there. And then I, I was holding this sucker in my hand and before I opened it, I had another idea and I thought, you know what, I'm going to throw this away. And So when I got home, I went and I threw it in the trash and I could not wait till dad got home. So I could tell my dad, look Mm -hmm. at all by myself at all this discipline I had to throw the, the thing, you know, this sucker away. And, and it was for me, this doesn't happen for everyone, but for me, the message that I adopted is that this is how I make mom and dad happy. And I was an oldest mm-hmm. child too. And, um, but this is how I make mom and dad happy. I, I make good, good decisions around food. And, um, but then I'd go to my cousin's house and they had, you know, they had things like Doritos and, you know, like normal foods. And, and I, and at a really young age, I would binge on the Doritos or I would, you know, just get so obsessed with them. And I didn't understand, like, you know, I thought, what is wrong with me? Like, why don't I have, you know, discipline or willpower? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm bad because I'm supposed to be making decisions around sugar. And, 
And, uh, and so it, it gets confusing. So sometimes at a young age, when there's such a pervasive message of like, quote unquote, health, or you must eat your vegetables, kids are so concrete and they conflate, you know, what they're doing with their value and their worth, you know, so like if I eat good things, I'm a good girl, you know, they conflate morality with food choices because that's the way that the kid brain works. And so all of this is going on, you know, for me as a kid. And I remember like for Halloween, one more story I'll tell you about that is um, my, we, we dress up just like normal kids. We'd go trick or treating and we would, uh, you know, get all the candy. And then we came home and I mean, my dad handled this so well. He, he gave us a choice and he said, um, you know, you, you can choose five of your favorite candies and I'll pay you for the rest, or you can keep them all. It's up to you. And, and so it's like he's teaching this lesson and he's giving us this option. But, you know, in my mind, um, in my mind, it's like, I know what I'm supposed to do to make mom and dad proud. And that's, you know, so it's not about what does Jenny really want. It's what does Jenny do to make mom and dad proud? And so it starts mm-hmm. to override some of that. Now, I'm not saying this happens for every kid. I'm just sharing, you know, my own personal experience. Yeah. And then there was other stuff playing in the background. You know, it's so like my mom was always on a diet. And my mom, you know, she'd do the same thing. You know, she'd like eat salads and then, you know, lose control and eat a whole bunch of brownies and really blame herself. And, you know, I'm just this young kid, you know, watching all that. And so you just... You don't even know it at the time, but you're just kind of picking up these messages and trying to make sense of them. And the way that my brain made sense of them is, you know, this is this food is good. If I'm this way, I'm good. This food is bad. If I'm this way, I'm bad. You know, so. For sure. And uh, so I, I want to just touch on something real quick. And we, we do this anytime we're talking about anything that can be deemed controversial or... Um, you know, important is that, right, if you're dealing with something like disordered eating, um, please seek help, right? Um, go see your doctor, seek help the way that, you know, you should. Um, know that, uh, Jenny, you said this, and, and I really appreciate that you said this, that, right, like, we're all talking from our own experiences, right? Um, and, and that's always important. That's always the message that we want to give. So whether you agree or disagree with anything I say, Bree says, or, or Jenny says, uh, that's great. Just know that, um, we're, we're coming from a place of our experiences and, um, yeah. And it's so, also not medical advice. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and then with that, so I, I love that you shared those, those stories. Um, you, you mentioned a few things and I'll get back to those, but go ahead and tell us a little bit about intuitive eating and, and what it is. Okay. So yeah. What, what is it really? So I kind of touched on this. So I'm going to tell you kind of the happy definition, and then I'll tell you the sciencey definition. Does that sound good? Yeah. Um, so our bodies have an intuitive wisdom, and like I mentioned, we're born eating intuitively. So um, as far as the intuitive wisdom, just think about how you know, like our bodies, they know when to have an immune response. You know, sure, we can do things to make it so it's less likely they'll have to have an immune response, like wash our hands, but our bodies know when it's time to have an immune response. That's part of their wisdom. And our bodies know to breathe and our hearts beat. And in that same way, 
that primal need for food and hunger, our bodies also know how to regulate that. And our bodies know how to regulate our size. Our bodies have a size where they like to exist and everybody's is a little bit different. It's genetically predetermined. Um, and so, uh, so sometimes though what happens is that with food and body, we get these messages that there's something wrong with the way that we're eating. We need to be more healthy. We need to, or our body needs to look different. And we get this idea that it's, it's our responsibility to change that. And so we start to rely on all of these external messages. And in doing so, we lose that connection with our internal cues. And that can happen at a really young age. But the really beautiful thing is that if we can reconnect with that internal wisdom um, or stay connected to it, then we have this treasure trove of information from moment to moment about what we need to keep ourselves well, you know, physically and mentally. So like I said, you know, intuitive eating, it starts with this really primal aspect of intuition, which is feeding ourselves. Um, but it, it bridges into emotional, psychological, even spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the happy, you know, definition. It's, it's recognizing that um, we have. Does that include, uh, like, it, it not only includes what to eat, but does it include how much to eat or? Yeah, so. Uh, yes, we have an intuitive wisdom about when we're full and when we're satisfied. These are all really important aspects of intuitive eating. And, um, and so it's different also from day to day. So it's like that's why when we have this external prescription for food, um, it, it's hard to regulate what we need intuitively because every day it's different, you know. And some days it's like it's obvious why you're starving because, you know, you went on this, you know, huge hike. And other days you're just really hungry and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But there's just different reasons why our body's different every day. And so to tune into that was so hunger, fullness and satisfaction. Those are um some of the, the primary cues. And then there's cues around movement too, like the kinds of movement that our bodies need. And that kind of comes later in the process. Um, so does that answer your question, Alan? Mm -hmm. Okay. So then let me, I'll share the sciencey definition. So intuitive eating is an evidence-based practice. And that means that it has a large body of research that supports its efficacy. And so when I say efficacy, like what is it effective at doing? And so the research shows that it's effective at improving all kinds of indicators of physical and mental health. So things like, you know, cholesterol, blood sugar, you know, stuff like that. And this isn't medical advice. It's not like a fix-all. Um, mm -hmm but it has a large body of research that supports um, improvement in psychological and physical indicators of health. Um, and it's also um, weight neutral. So, so what that means is that this idea of weight has to be put on the back burner in order to hear 
the body's cues. So with my clients, I always say, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with your body. It's not a weight loss program. And it might be that you get bigger. It might be that you stay the same. It might be that you get smaller. I don't know what's going to happen. And for me personally, when I went through it, um, for myself, my body got bigger because I was a big time restrictor and, um, and, you know, my clients have different, different responses to it. The idea is that you can be healthy despite weight. Now, this is controversial, so I want you to push yeah, back I'm, and... Yeah, I'm ready to push back. I also want to make sure Brie, uh, if she has anything that she wants to talk about, but I'm, I'm, I want to push back on that and right? Like weight, I, I agree, right? Like... I, I like what you're saying. I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. And right in the fact that you, you know, I think it's relative, right? You got bigger, right? On your journey through this, but you, you've never been right. Like big is relative, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm pretty sure I knew you before you did the intuitive eating journey, right? Like, and now I know you right now, you now I know you now, when you say bigger, I'm like, like I chuckle a little bit, like, that's funny that, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're bigger. Yeah, sure. You're bigger, but Again, you're still healthy, but when it comes to obesity, right? Like when it, you know, and Brie and I have talked about this a bit, right? Like there is, right? There's an obesity epidemic in the, in the United States, right? It is shown that obesity, right? Like has major issues with, um, you know, fat around organs, fat around um, the heart, right? It, it affects uh, your joints, right? It, it affects your overall health. Um, so w- what you're saying, right? Cause like when I hear intuitive eating, right. And like, you didn't describe any of what I hear, but when I hear intuitive eating, like I'm like, yeah, Oreos and Coca-Cola. Like I think of like all the things that I just love and that I know I can't eat on the regular. And I, it's just like, no, intuitively I just want to eat Oreos and all the garbage but and shit. I don't know if she's saying that's necessary. Like there's different right. elements, right? And, and she works with, I think you mentioned addiction, right? So what chemically happens in the brain, the hormones that, ha- that um, coincide, right? With certain foods aren't necessarily, um, they might be masking you from your, in- your intuition. I'm, I'm guessing, but obviously I, I'm going to defer to you, Jenny, to speak on that idea of, um, uh, like the obesity epidemic is, is not related to being intuitive or conscious about eating. It's probably quite the opposite. And when you say there's like healthy weights, right? Like that healthy isn't related to weight. I think it's, it's, um, yeah, she's not necessarily saying like she probably I'm going to guess that most intuitive eaters wouldn't necessarily if they're obese, become more obese. I don't know, like more obese, they'd start to get more in tune. What is what their body is wanting and needing versus what um, like the dopamine hits are telling them. Mm -hmm. Okay. You guys opened lots of can of worms. So (laughs) yes. So, um, so we're going to go there. So, and I hope you guys are all right with that. So, um, and I'm really glad that you brought it up and I, and I welcome these types of questions. 
Um, so first, Alan, you hit on something. Um, so there, there is a thing called size privilege. And that is, you know, so like a person that has size privilege, they can go to the doctor and get treatment and not be told to lose weight. Now there, or they can be, you know, they can show up in the world and not be stigmatized. So I do have size privilege. It's not something that I should, you know, be ashamed of. It's just that everybody, every single body should have that same privilege. They should be able to show up in the world without stigma. They should get dignity and respect and despite their size. So that's the size privilege piece. And so what is that like to exist in a, in a bigger body? I don't know. I can still go to the store and get sizes that fit me. Um, and so there is this, yeah, there's this discrepancy. So when I'm working with people in bigger bodies, I, I want to recognize that. I don't know what it's like to walk through the world in a bigger body. And you might have to explain some of that stuff to me sometimes, but I want to know. And I'm sensitive to that. And, and so the, um, so you, you hit on uh, one of the principles, Alan, of making peace with food and Oreos. So I want to touch on that. But first, let's talk about the obesity epidemic. So in the body positive, body neutral community, the word obesity is spelled like a swear word, like you do like asterisks and dollar signs, because it's a metric that is based on um, BMI. And BMI is something that doesn't tell you anything about your health. You know, so like a really healthy gymnast would have a higher, a high BMI because they're short, but they, um, they weigh more because of their, you know, so it's just, it's not, and the BMI metric was never intended to measure health and weight in the first place. It was like the statistician, you know, early on, he was doing something else and somehow they sort of adopted it. So, and then the obesity epidemic, it's so interesting because, so this, there was this huge rise in obesity, like overnight, all of a sudden, like there was this huge obesity ec epidemic and this was back in probably um, the late 90s. And what happened is that the scale for obesity, they bumped it so that like a person in a normal body weight, they moved it up a couple percentage points or a couple metrics so that now a person, you know, just like a couple. So it bumped all these people over the line into obesity and they called it the obesity epidemic. Now, everything I'm sharing with you, I, I have um, the, the stuff to back it up. And so whatever we want to link in the show notes, I'm happy to do that because I know that it's not a commonly accepted, um, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift for sure. It's a mm -hmm. whole different way to look at health. So then this connection between um, being in a larger body and health. So there is literal, and if you find it, please show me, but there is literally no study that shows that weight, that weight causes certain health conditions. Now it is correlated, absolutely. But the thing with the research is that it doesn't show, it doesn't, um, it doesn't account for 
other things that are known to impact health, like yo-yo dieting and the stigma of living in a larger body and sometimes socioeconomic status. So these are three things that independently have been shown to impact health. You know, so like heart disease, diabetes, you know, these this common these common um, things that we associate with being in a larger body. Um, so uh, the, the research doesn't, it doesn't connect them um, and it doesn't control for those things. So there's this thing called the obesity paradox. And what it shows is actually that people in, um, in larger bodies who have, let's say, there's a list of these different diseases, but we'll just, kidney, kidney disease is one of them. So that's one that's coming to my brain. So people in larger bodies who have kidney disease fare better than people in smaller bodies who have kidney disease. And, you know, people in larger bodies who have diabetes fare better than people in smaller bodies who have diabetes. Can I, what do you mean by fare better? What's fare um, better? Okay, so, so they're more likely to, um, to improve their health, they're they're more able to um, like their morbidity and their mortality is not worse. Okay. Their morbidity and their mortality is better than a person in a smaller body. Okay. Um, and, and but does, yeah, go ahead. Is is the rate at so th- that's that's fine and well, I can appreciate that. But is, is the rate at which kidney disease or diabetes greater? if you're in a a larger body, like it's great that you can deal with it better. Right. I I get that you're saying Mm -hmm. that, but are you less likely to have it if you are not in a larger body? So, so what the research shows is that the, um, so morbidity is, are you going to die sooner? So do people in larger bodies, I'll address your question specifically, Alan. So do people in larger bodies die sooner than people in smaller bodies? And the answer is no, they do not. Do people in larger bodies have more, um, wait, mortality, morbidity is the illness, mortality is the the death. Yeah, so do people in larger bodies have um, more, more morbidity than people in smaller bodies? And, when you control for those things that I outlined, like the impact of being in a stigmatized body, that can be any stigmatized body, the impact of yo-yo dieting and socioeconomic factors, they do not have those diseases more often than people in smaller bodies. So I'll give you, I'll give you, <laughs> this might help you get your mind around it a little bit. Okay. So diabetes, right? So diabetes is, um, type two diabetes. It's about, um, your body being not so sensitive to insulin and sometimes not having enough insulin. Right. And so what happens is that your blood sugar gets wacky. And so what, some of the research has shown is that that is connected. It's also connected to um, an elevated fight or flight response, which is a result of 
trauma or high stress. And it makes sense because whenever you're in a chronic state of fight or flight or high stress, then your body mobilizes sugar and it moves it into your bloodstream. Now, um, and so of course that causes an increase in blood sugar. And so one of my clients, she, uh, she had diabetes when she came to me and her body didn't change a ton. She had had gastric bypass. She'd always been in a bigger body, but when she was able to improve her relationship with food, which means, you know, like the binging goes away, the Oreos end up being neutral. They're kind of not really a thing. Mm -hmm. Then her blood sugar, she was like not even pre-diabetic anymore. Again, her body didn't change at all, but her relationship with food changed. So, um, okay, so... Can you, can yeah. you explain that? Like you're, you're saying like, the insul- ahead, like with stress, right? Fight or flight, it mobilizes insulin, go like to your limbs to run. Right. And then mm-hmm. it doesn't get burned off. And so then it gets stored and then it's that constant and then it gets replaced. Right. So you're like, it's this cycle of just building up without burning off what is being like the insulin that's being like kicked out. And so the stress, like what's the chicken or the egg, right? Like something might've caused them to move towards, um, like overeating and developing a larger body. And then the stress of the larger body continues that cycle of stress and the chemical imbalances that happen that lead to diabetes, right? To have those massive fluctuations. And then, so what she's saying is like, she's essentially removing right? The, the stress of what the relationship to eating is, which is bringing down. And I'm just saying this, trying to see if I'm mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. hearing it yeah, right. Yeah. And maybe mm-hmm. like a non-expert trying to regurgitate it helps. No, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's, to- it's confusing. Well, uh, you said, a co- oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead no, that's so it mobilizes that- sugar. You said it mobilizes insulin and it mobilizes sugar. So, um, and so, and you, and you said something about them becoming, you know, the stress of becoming larger and perhaps they were meant to be larger, mm-hmm. like genetic. So we have this idea that a small body is a healthy body and a, and a larger body is not a healthy body, but weight is not a behavior, you know, so we can do health encouraging behaviors, but weight isn't a behavior and you can be healthy at, um, at any, at any weight. Mm -hmm. So now Bree, so becoming, so this idea of like, some people are meant to be in bigger bodies. It's genetically predetermined. Um, so our height is predetermined. It's 80% predetermined by genetics and nobody would dispute that. You know, people are like, well, yeah, of course it is. That makes sense. And but weight is also genetically predetermined, 70%. And, but people dispute that and they believe that if they're supposed to be in a bigger body, that like that can't be true. And this has been shown in adoption and twin studies that weight is genetically predetermined. Now that doesn't take away from the pain of living in a larger body in this culture 
and being stigmatized because everybody believes that people in larger bodies, you know, they are, they do certain things like that. They're at fault for having that body. I guess See, but well, my not- question would be the, like, cause you stop growing height wise at a certain age. So what is the age that you stop like, how do you know if you're in your meant to be mm-hmm. body or yeah. if you are actually like have an issue, whether that falls on or like you're not accurate and that can fall on either side of the spectrum, underweight, yeah. overweight to like what your meant to be body is. And the only reason I said like move into a larger body, like the trauma work that I've done, there is a piece where people have been like, it's pretty common with sexual abuse, like young Mm -hmm. sexual abuse where they Mm -hmm. don't want to look pretty. So they do things, whatever that looks like to, you know, not be attractive to people. And I'm just protective. I'm not saying that larger bodies aren't attractive, but I'm saying there Mm -hmm. is, but maybe that person, the larger body is not, they're meant to be weight in this world. Right. So like, how do you Mm -hmm. decipher that? Yeah, and maybe yeah, you don't good question. To. And and you do. What's, yeah, that's a good and, point. And, and what's within reason? Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that, right? Like, yeah, like my again, 600 well, pound life. Yeah, right. That that's exactly my point. Like my 600 pound life, Jenny. You can't be telling me that's healthy. Like, I I can't. I will. I can't get on board with that. Right. Like, she's not meant to be 600 pounds. And yes, there's a whole slew of of things that are going into that, but that that can't be healthy mm-hmm. but it's also but i'm not just i'm not just saying this for the larger body i'm saying this for this for the the anemic bulimic right like mm-hmm. anorexic right like 95 pound person right like that's not healthy either right so like what's and and right maybe you're 95 pounds and that's where you're supposed to be like i'm not putting a number mm-hmm. on it but my right like my my point is is that right like Right, like I love what Bree said, right? So, like, can we get an answer to that? But also, mm-hmm. there has to be. And and again, the spec, right? BMI, I agree. BMI is bullshit, right? Like, because you look at at bodybuilders who are yeah. considered over overweight, it's a right? Like, metric. B, right? Like, yeah. B, B, I, but I do believe body fat percentage is a is a good number to look at. And again, right? It's not that everyone is supposed to be seven percent, right? Like, I just think that 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 tells you a little bit more than what, and for those that are listening that don't know, BMI is a body mass index and it's a number based off of height ratio to rate uh, to weight ratio that uh, again, like Jenny said, it was some, I, I think it was arbitrary how they came up with it. And like, your it was like your weight is supposed to be this much of your height and blah, blah, blah. And so I agree that BMI is bullshit. Yeah. But. It's like bones. Right. Like yeah. someone yeah. with a big bone and thin bone can right. be like an incredible difference in right. Like there's right. A- so, so I'm not arguing that. And so I would love to hear like your response to what Bree's saying as well mm-hmm. as there's got to be some reason. Like 600 pound life, that's a problem. Yeah. So what the heck is my set point? And how do I know if I'm there? Number one and number two. Yeah. What about the psychological factors? So there are. Yeah. There's. There's situations where people use their body to protect. So maybe they are in a in a bigger body because psychologically and neurologically they're doing that to protect. And also people um, try to get into smaller bodies to disappear and not be seen. And mm-hmm. um, 
stay like not uh, develop sexually. Or to meet, you know, to, or like, to meet not... a health standard that we've created, right? Like this ideal of what a woman or man should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's complicated though because you know a a person who is I don't who doesn't have um, other vulnerabilities is probably not going to tip over into an eating disorder. You know, so like Brie, you know, you you have a good relationship with food in your body and you just always have. Um, you mentioned in the beginning, or I think you always have, I don't know, you do now anyway. Um, and so uh, the the idea is that it's it's not about the body. So the way that we're trying to control our body and the way we're trying to morph it is not so much about the body. It's more about the psychology and the beliefs around body. Now, does that make sense? When it comes I to... Think so. I, I, think, I, I think so. Does that make sense, Bree? I can go a little... T- ask yeah. me more questions. Okay. Wait, can you repeat it? Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. So... Um, <laughs> So it, the body is not, what we're trying to do about the body is not so much about the body. It's more about the mind. It's yeah. more about okay. the psychology. It's yeah, the belief. Yeah. yeah. And so if we have an unhealthy relationship with food or an unhealthy relationship with our body, that all exists up here in our heads, not in our bodies. Now, certainly it has an impact on the body, but body image is in the mind. So like if you change your body, it doesn't change body image because body image is in the mind. Mm -hmm. And body image is basically what, it's one aspect of how you know yourself. So you know, you know, and for some people, that aspect of how they know themselves is it outweighs some of the other ways that they know themselves, you know, so like maybe, so like I know myself as, um, you know, a, a writer and a thinker and a reader and a wife and, you know, all these other roles. And I also know myself at, at, in my body, but for some people, the way that they know their bodies outweighs all that other stuff. It takes primary importance. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think like, I, like, I've, saying, like, I, I've never had an eating disorder. I mean, I, and I, it's, what is a disorder in terms of eating? Like, that's a whole, like, mm-hmm. what you can go into. But I have a conscious relationship to my food. But it's always, mm-hmm. and my weight, right? And so, two and a half years ago, I weighed mm, almost 20 pounds more than I did now, which was 20 pounds more than I did probably mm, six and a half months before that. I was living in my car. I was eating differently. I wasn't as mobile. My lifestyle was different. Um, you know, and I, but I hit, I did hit a weight where I said, okay, this is, oh, I weigh this. Wow. I didn't realize that. I could tell my jeans were a little tighter. My, my jacket was a little tighter. And I was like, I need to start getting active again and like watching what I eat. But I, like, I don't see that as an eating disorder. It was just like, oh, mm-hmm. I have like, Okay, my lifestyle typically, and in college I was 20 pounds more than I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, my lifestyle, and I, I guess I never had, like, shame, 
but I've been connected, mm-hmm. you know, like I've had awareness around it being like, Ooh, like I don't go on like diets per se, but I'm mm-hmm. like, Ooh, I gotta like be a little, you know, change the way that I'm, I'm eating and moving my body and all of these things. But I think there's the differences, like my outlets for things might've been like alcohol and drugs versus like some are like the food, right? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. use that piece and um, yeah, I, I just like, I don't, I guess I don't connect with the idea of a disorder, but I see yeah. all the psychological part and I'm not saying I'm, I just eat whatever I, you know, like mm-hmm. what's, what's yeah. the difference between health conscious and then yes. disordered eating, Perfect. right? Like, yeah. And I still and, have to address and, your other question, your set point and Sorry, hold on one second. But also, Brie, we've talked about like your weight, like being twenty pounds over in the past, and I believe you mentioned like your like your performance and your in in the things that you do as an athlete was off too during that point, right? Like, well, I just wasn't doing it, and then when I went back to running more, I was like, oh gosh, this is this is hard. <laughs> yeah. So so like performance was hindered by this this gain in weight. However, performance well, in college. How do we know that? I, water was it polo. just that she wasn't running or was it her weight? Yeah. It, yeah. We, we don't know. I mean, it is, I do, it, I do, I felt the difference on my joints, right? Like of the, and I do that with backpacking. If I have a 40 pound backpack on versus, or a 50 pound backpack versus a 27 pound backpack on, I can feel it in my joints, but it's also maybe because they're not used to, right. um, they, yeah. they haven't built with that impact. But the 20 pounds extra in college as a water polo player, like I needed that mm-hmm. weight, right? So like mm-hmm. I've had, I don't know. And, but also we, this <laughs> college, we didn't really eat very healthy. Yeah, and we drank a lot of beer. And like yeah, I could have exactly. performed really well. Maybe I could have performed well at water polo. And granted my last year, I lost like 10 you, pounds. And like, you yeah. performed you performed well at Waterfall because of the beer. That was that's the key. Everything in college is because of the beer. But so. it's it's it, I think it's like a very fine line of like what is conscious yeah. and connected eating yeah. and like taking action. Like I'm not a diet person, but I do do things where I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna and I'm I am like in a deep exploration of food as of lately. Um, really not and nothing to do with weight, but yeah. everything to do with like, how is this interacting in my body? Like, what are the signs that, because I've studied some Ayurveda and it's like, how do I build that in? But it's not, I don't fall in line with everything that they believe, like they follow and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, so what's the difference between being health conscious and, um, and so Intuitive eating ultimately is about eating in a way that feels good to your body. And it's about removing the things that disrupt you from hearing your interoceptive awareness. Mm -hmm. And so in that, so when you were living in your car, I would guess that it was a more stressful time. No. Okay. It was a joy. Okay. It was a joyful (laughs) time. Yeah. I chose to live in my car. Okay. Um, It was... I think a lot of that time was, um, I w- I purposely took some time to like slow down, to just, to turn inward, to, mm-hmm. um, like figure out where, like I left Colorado and that's how I landed in Cody, 
but it was really like tapping back into creativity, slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it's like I wasn't getting out in nature as much as I did when I mm-hmm. lived in a house because I was traveling around. So like my days oh, to I get see. out, I was in a car and then figuring out the new town that I was in. Um, I was eating not as healthy or for me, what I would consider healthy mm-hmm. because, um, I didn't have, I cooked it from a jet boil. Like, I, yeah, like, mm-hmm. you know, and so I just different. And then mm-hmm. I was also, um, when I linked up with certain people, like I was eating kind of with their lifestyle, which was very different from like my lifestyle typically. So there was, yeah, I was, it was a really free time, like probably less mm-hmm. stressful than, um, like every day. I think about it all mm-hmm. the time. It, there, <laughs> yeah, it's there, like we. Yeah, go ahead, Dallin. There, we were we were told like you know we were sold this whole SNL bit. Right of living in a van down by a river, right? Like it, it, it's. A I know. Did you thing. like how I went straight to? You and, must have been stressed. Right, no, actually, right, I was right, really, right, I, yeah. yeah. That's that's yeah, <laughs> that's sorry exactly about it. That. Sorry about Me, that no, no, but that's the thing. Like here in Colorado, and and I'm sure it's it's everywhere, but like you see it a lot mm-hmm. here in Colorado is living in a van ba- down by the river is the fucking dream, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. people like people are in their homes trying to sell their homes and get rid of all their shit to go live in a van down by the river. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's funny to see that, right? Like you put that like, Oh, that must've been stressful. And I'm thinking like, no, how freeing. Like, sh- yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I, I mean, it so, doesn't come so without stresses. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, stress on the bot. I realized like, Oh gosh, all my clients who like sit at a desk all day, this is what they feel when I'm like sitting mm-hmm. in a car all day. In the car. Yeah. But Yeah. Yeah, I, I would, um, I, I, I wonder, you know, I, I mean, in, I don't know who's to say, cause you know, like with health, it, it, it's about zooming out. We have to see it with a bigger lens and it is about that, um, finding that space to, you know, have that white space and find that creativity and find that adventure and that spontaneity and whatever it is. And, um, yeah, it's not always about, um, being rigid around our eating Mm -hmm. and, and as far as, so it's intuitive eating is always about getting to the point where you eat in a way that feels really good to your body. And, and, the, on like Instagram and, you know, all that stuff, like when people look at it's, um, intuitive eating, it's like cupcakes and donuts everywhere. And that is because there's this step that you go through, which is making peace with food, where you offer yourself unconditional permission to eat all food. And the reason for that is because when that, that permission is not offered, it stays urgent. And, and there's ways to do it, you know? So it's like, like I said, on Instagram, it's like you're eating donuts all day long. It's not like that. It's you reintroduce foods that are considered like forbidden or, you know, and you do it in a way that's, that's safe and, you know, you're already nourished. So, so the process is called habituating. Okay. And so mm-hmm. this is something that naturally happens when we, eat normal and don't restrict. You you habituate to food. Um, But when you restrict, then there's certain foods that you just don't 
quite get that habituation with. So whenever people are like, I'd eat Oreos all day long. Have you guys heard anybody say that today? <laughs> then then some, I got to pick on Alex. What that usually means is that there is a history of restriction with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to this podcast the other day and this guy, his thing was Oreos. And, and when he was growing up, sure enough, like, and he would eat a sleeve of Oreos. If he sat down, he, he couldn't stop because it remained so urgent to him because he had, and so he thought, well, something's wrong with me. I must be addicted to sugar. I must be addicted mm-hmm. to Oreos. So I need to address that for you guys too. Um, the idea See, of I food addiction. I don't I don't think that I'm addicted or I, so, and, and, and right. Like maybe we can address this, like, and, and just see like the, this maybe yeah. a little mini, mini process here. But mm-hmm. like when I sit down with a thing of Oreos, I'm not like, Oh, I'm addicted. So I need to eat these or like, like, it's not like you're conscious though. That's the whole thing. A lot of this is, is in the, is in the, is in the subconscious, right? Like, and I think that's where she was saying, like the psychological piece of it is what you really are working mm-hmm. on, right? Versus then like what it, what yeah, it actually Yeah, thank you. Because it's is. not, exactly. It's not like I never let myself have Oreos because maybe you're letting yourself have Oreos, but there's this little tape playing that's shaming mm-hmm. you while you're eating the Oreos. And, and it might be subtle. It's just, it might be yeah. subtle, but something, you believe that Oreos are not good for your body. And so when you eat an Oreo, your tape, your tape starts playing and it goes, oops, you shouldn't be eating this. You shouldn't be eating this. This is bad for Mm -hmm. your body. And so it creates this deprivation mentality. And Mm -hmm. there's this analogy that I like to use. It's like a rubber band. So this can happen if you're physically restricting or psychologically restricting, which it sounds like that's what you're doing, Alan. So the more that you restrict, the tighter the rubber band gets. And eventually, when you let go of that rubber band, there's going to be some type of a binge. And people always go, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. And it's really just because of the restriction. And so um, so there's a process to move through that so that food is not urgent, food is not forbidden, and then it becomes really neutral. Now, I had to do this with potato chips. And I mean, and I still love potato chips, but it's like, I need to hear this. (laughs) I love chips. They're amazing. Right. So I used to, you know, tell my husband, like, you cannot keep these in the house because it was hard for me, um, to eat one or two or eat a handful. Like I really, I could, I love them so much. And then when my stepdaughter was here in the summer, she always, we always had chips in the house. And so that was a nightmare for me. And, um, So I had to go through this process of habituation. And now today, chips can sit in the pantry and I forget about them. You know, they go stale. Or another one was, um, it's about, you also figure out, you know, how to genuinely find satisfaction with food. So you have this idea that there's this food that's like kind of sinful and forbidden or whatever. So, you know, there's the chips for me and then also french fries. Now, today I still love chips, but I don't they're not urgent to me. It's like mm-hmm. I, I enjoy them and I enjoy them as much as I want to enjoy them, but it's not urgent. Um, but french fries, what I learned, so those were super um I love french fries and I would always order a salad 
And then I'd wait for my husband to like finish. I'd be like staring at his French fries the whole time. And so when I went through this process with the French fries, what I discovered is that it's really hard to find a good French fry. Like I don't like I used to just eat cold, you know, limp, gross French fries because and I it's like I was like, I have to eat these French fries. I love them. But now it's like, no, like I'm not going to eat a French fry unless it's delicious. And there are some good French fries, but it's hard to find a good French fry. And so now it's like if I want French fries, I'll order them. But if they're not good, I'm not going to eat them. Whereas before my brain was like, this is bad. This is bad. And so it just stayed urgent and I'd eat it whether it tasted good or not, you know. Um, a lot of times people discover they have this urgent food and when we go through this process, they realize they don't even like it. Like it happens a lot with my clients. It's funny. Like one of them was a chocolate thing and you know, Hershey kisses. And I'm thinking like, well, Hershey kisses, like why not, you know, Godiva or something, but whatever. And so, (laughs) but they ate Hershey kisses and, and when they really tuned in they realized that, um, kind of tastes like a crayon tip. Um, they, they don't really like Hershey Kisses. And if they want chocolate, you know, they find chocolate that's good for them. So so it's it's that morality that we're ascribing to food. And, and, we, and we have to zoom out because worrying is bad, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard on our health, period. It's a human thing, it's gonna happen but it does create this physiological response that causes all this other stuff to happen. You know, so like cortisone, you know, mobilizing sugar into, you know, raising your heart rate, higher blood pressure, stress kind of does all this stuff. So stressing about your food is also not good for your health. And pleasure is is good for your health. Like pleasure is, and, and pleasure is not the same as gluttony or laziness. It's you know, so like, for example, um, you, you seek, um, you seek satisfaction, you seek, you know, that pleasant moment. So like eating more food would be unpleasant or sometimes eating when you're not hungry is unpleasant. So when is it really pleasant to eat? When is it really satisfying to eat? And, and these are kind of the things that we play with and tweak and, Part, you know, and it, it all starts with learning to um, cue into your hunger and then you kind of build on it. And, and you got to take off the like the rigidity and the food is good or bad and all the rules that we have around food, you know, and like the beliefs. So that's this process anyway. So let me see if I can relate this just like to the layman. Like, yeah, so when I say like I when I when I say like I would eat Oreos all day like that I wouldn't right mm-hmm. because it doesn't that doesn't feel good yeah right like uh so like I, I feel like I've gotten to this point with, with coke coca-cola mm-hmm. not cocaine um but <laughs> um right I right like I'm to the point where like what you were saying right like I don't like coca-cola out of a fountain out of mm. a bottle out of mm-hmm. right like I like coca-cola out of a can mm-hmm. everything else tastes like shit and like, I'm not going to drink it. Yeah. Right. Like, so, right. So, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is right. Like the back to the Oreos, right? Like I'm not going to eat Oreos all day because it doesn't make me feel good. Right. So is, is that more along, right? Like you, like we have these restrictions like, Oh no, I can't eat these Oreos, but then you binge on them 
and you think, right, oh, no, I, I would eat these all day. But, right, so, but that's me, and that's my experience, right, because it doesn't make me feel good. But how do you explain the my 600-pound life, right? How yeah. do you, right, and maybe, and maybe that's the mm-hmm. exception, right? Maybe, like, we're so, right, like, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Like, we're so focused on these exceptions and not necessarily the rules. But how do you explain, right, the person that would eat the Oreos all day long? All right. How do you, or are we we now, are we now getting into the, the, the psychological trauma and then like they're using the food as the, as a coping mechanism type of thing? Mm -hmm. Like what, what's going on there? Yeah. So sometimes it is, you know, so like we have this term emotional eating. Sometimes it is that, but most of the time when I dig in it all, no matter what their size, it all goes back to, there is some restriction going on and and any person that is in a larger body, they have probably dieted. They have probably tried so hard to control their bodies. And, mm-hmm. and that um, dieting up and down, that can bump your set point weight up. That yo-yo, because whenever you, you know, the, the prescription for weight loss is less calories in than out. But the problem is that whenever we seek intentional weight loss, we enter into this fight with our own biology. So as soon as there's fewer calories in than out, then this hormone called leptin leptin goes up and it increases our appetite and reduces our metabolism. So remember The Biggest Loser, Mm -hmm. that that TV show? Yep. Um, So all these people in larger bodies, they... Um, lose weight in front of America. And they were determined. I mean, you better bet that they're determined. And and how, I mean, how much shame would they experience if they gained it back? Because they lost all this weight in front of America. And guess what? They all gained it back. Not because they weren't, weren't trying. Like, they even had trainers with them afterwards. But what happens is... Um, so they had this study that looked at all of them six years later and they had less lean muscle mass than working out all the time than before the show started and their metabolism was down 500 calories a day still six years later six years after the competition and the thing is that any time, you, you know, like this intentional weight loss thing, 95 to 98% of the time, it fails. And that's not to say that you can't lose weight because we, we've probably all been on diets where we lose weight. Eventually, though, within three to five years, the weight is going to come back on. It, it will. So you see the before and after pictures on Instagram and then all the shame when it comes back on later because we enter into this fight with our biology and it jacks up our metabolism and it can and it bumps our set point weight up because the, the idea is you want to have a good relationship with your body and start, when your body isn't getting the nutritional intake if even if it's you're not like totally starving yourself it replicates trauma and so your your cells are like oh my gosh i'm not getting what i need i'm not getting what i need and that's the same that creates the same neurological response as trauma and so um so the when you can kind of nourish your body the way that it's supposed to be nourished and when your body's hungry and you eat and when you're full you stop and you kind of like 
get this into this conversation with your body, then it starts to go like, oh, okay, she's got my back now. She, she's listening to me now and I'm not so scared. So I'm not going to hold on to all of this extra. And it kind of falls, what needs to fall away, falls away. If that's what is going on with the body. But so many times, like people, people in even in larger bodies, there's so much restriction in their background and so much yo-yo dieting. And so does that make sense how it creates this cycle? Well, I would wonder what's the time period that biggest loser, like I didn't, I, what was the time period that they had? Like the competition was like over how many months? Yeah. Are you not long? So are you yeah, guessing it like, like, wasn't, like, it like wasn't it like 30 days or 60 days? Some, I don't like, know. It was something crazy. And yeah, ridiculous. you're right. So but not it's long. like, it, it's not a help. Like, so that, like what you're saying, the comparison of before and after is like, our bodies do adapt. Right. And so things adapted to their weight before the competition and they're like shocking the system by trying to lose so much like activity and Mm -hmm. eating and everything all at the same time. That's like, that has to be a massive trauma on the body. And then it doesn't, it's not happening in a sustainable way that it can Mm -hmm. adapt to the new form. So what does it do? Mm -hmm. It goes back to the old or more, right? Because it's like chaos in there. Whereas like a more sustainable, if like you're not at whatever your weight is, I don't know. You know if people yeah. if people do want to lose like if they do want to lose weight, right? And what I'm hearing a lot too is it's like you're working with shifting from it it being done for you versus like an external, right? Because like even with that there's like the shame that went with like I I was on the biggest loser, I lost all this weight, I gained it back, like Mm-hmm. And, and when it's just like to feel, to actually just feel good versus the number, like, and I don't know. Yeah. I'm just like so, was hearing a lot of things and I, cause I was trying to relate mm-hmm. into like myself again, when I gained some weight and you know, it was like, I didn't, yeah, I was like, okay, well this is where I'm at. You know, yeah. and I think right. and see how people could go down like a lot of, I was like, oh, whoa, okay. I'm going to like, I got to start maybe just keeping an eye on what I eat, like just getting more active, whatever. But there's this and, assumption that it's the weight that's making you feel bad. And it's, it's, well, it's and it's not, the the I knew it yeah. wasn't the weight. I wasn't feeling bad because of the weight, but I do think I was feeling bad because of what I was eating, like right. not mentally bad, but like, I didn't feel good like I felt sluggish I felt all these things because I wasn't like active as active as I normally am I was eating different foods so it's like the foods and the it's the lifestyle versus the the number I don't own a scale okay like yeah I if someone has a scale at their house I'm like oh I wonder how much I weigh you know like and I I know that's appropriate like I'm not I'm not saying that to be to be like oh I don't need a scale it's just that I I don't gauge I gauge things on how I feel. Feel. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So real quick, Biggest Loser, 30 weeks. 30 weeks. Oh, yeah, so it's like, ridiculous. So, yeah, so, so but still, that's not, yeah, you make no, a good point, Bree. It's not, yeah, yes. you make a good point. It's not sustainable. So I'm not using that as an example of no, sustainability, but, but you're. You, 
I think it proves your point. I mean, I think it suggests your, what you're talking about Mm -hmm. is that like, if weight loss is something that you want to seek out this crash diet, the yo, like the, like, it's not creating a lifestyle. It's creating trauma. It's creating more psychological impact than if you were to just start to shift your, like this approach that what I'm hearing that you have with, with intuitive eating, like that approach is more like innate and natural. And so, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not this like boom, like hit across the side. It's, the the problem I well I see I see a few things that that come up in right my thoughts one it, we're all about instant gratification right so mm-hmm. right and again it goes back to right this the images that we're supposed to be this right and oh well I need instant gratification so right like thirty weeks like that might sound like a while but like we all agree that that's not but mm-hmm. also like I immediately think right like right because I I still think. The, there's a level of obesity that's bad. We haven't gotten to that yet, but right. Like I, right. Like how my, my question is how long did it take you to get there? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, right. Let's say, let's, let's just keep using the 600 pound life. Right. How long did it take? You didn't get there in 30 weeks. So you can't get back in 30 weeks. Right. The, the, the journey, the, the, right. Like the, the journey, it took way longer than 30 weeks. It took, umpteen years to get there right so i uh, like i feel like food choice is is a lifestyle in in my mind and and maybe this goes against intuitive eating right and again like i go back to what makes me feel good right when i overeat right like i i feel like i'm pretty intuitive eater right for the most part because like if i'm eating to the gorge myself like it happens right where i'm like so full and like i hurt like i don't enjoy that after yeah. But the the point is, is that, right, like, it's it's a journey. So if it took you 10 years to gain 150 pounds, right, because of binge eating, right, it, it's, it's going to take 10 years, right, and maybe not 10 years, but, like, th- there's a similar journey to get back to the, the set point weight that we're talking about. Or, or what if, or what if it's this... So it's all about what's disrupting them from hearing the cues of their body. What is disrupting them? And so, so many times what's disrupting them is the the pain of living in a larger body and the stigma of that. So what if rather than us having this belief that they need to change their body, you know, we support their psychological healing and the the terrible experience of living in a world who has stigmatized them all their life, you know, from being in this bigger body and people that are in, um, bigger body. So usually the people that are on my 600 pound life, they've always been in a bigger body. Um, you know, or there was this tipping point where, you know, their body matured and then it was, you know, they just, and so, anybody in a that stigma is like what what i think really needs to be worked on it, like instead of us believing you are doing something wrong you need to change the way you're eating it's more what are we all doing wrong that create this stigma what are we all what what is the system saying to people in these bodies and how is this system judging them and making it harder for them to seek health 
and and then they adopt this internalized stigma also and they the in their mind their body isn't good so it's harder for them to be an intuitive eater and trust their body like if you have a smaller body society says small bodies are good so when you hear a message from your body you go well my body's good so you know i this message must be good but when you're in a bigger body and you hear a message from your body you think that your body's bad and so you it's harder to connect with the cues of the body it's easier to kind of discredit them and override them and alan what happens is sometimes like when you have gone so long without hearing the cues of the body and overriding them or dieting and restricting is that they go and eh, he's not listening to me anyway i'm going to stop sending these cues and and the cues get muted you can't hear them and so part of the process of becoming an intuitive eater for a lot of people is to like make it safe for those cues to come back on board so that the people can actually hear them because they can't always I know, yeah, I don't like to eat the uncomfortable fullness. That doesn't feel good to me. But right. there are a lot of people who do eat the uncomfortable fullness and they don't, they're not so much cued into like, how am I feeling right now? They're, it, That's it's the disruptive. intuitive part that they're missing. Yes, it, it's disrupted. So- I, I, want, I want to talk about something, I want, and, and again, my experience, right? Because like we're talking about like larger bodies and smaller bodies and 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 all that, right? So all of that is dependent because I'm the opposite, mm-hmm. right? So I grew up skinny, being told I don't eat enough, being told I don't I eat like a bird, and all my life I've been trying to gain weight, right. even to, like to this day. I'm still trying to like, I'm literally, I literally, I'm paying someone right now to help me gain weight. Right. Like, so that like the it's, it's both. What do you want to gain weight for? Right. Cause I, right. Because there, there's absolutely trauma there. So part of it is I want to gain weight because, uh, right. Like, being a man and being small mm-hmm. isn't okay. good. Well, I, I know. Right? I mean, I just was like, no, yeah. I, I'm just no, more like, of like, what, what are you I'm not saying that should or shouldn't, but like, I was wondering why you like, so, your so I have a few reasons. Is, a thing. I, is it how your body looks? Is it? What? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, so it's a few things, right? Like it's, it's absolutely the image that society, right? Like paints, right? Like, so, and, and a lot of this is right. Like trauma, right? So, right. It's the, it's this image that society um, has of like what men should, men should be muscle bound and right. Like, so there's definitely that going on in my mind. And I fought with that. I fought with that all my life. Mm. Right. But, um, now that, right. Like now that I am the age that I'm at and I've done a lot of the work, right. I still fight with that. Right. That absolutely is still there. Right. That has not gone away, but I've gotten better at dealing with it. And now it's right. Like, yeah. Like now I'm like, fuck, I want to gain the weight just cause I want to see what I look like at that weight. Right. Like, and, and like, I want to lift heavier weights. And, and so like, I'm sort of at, right. Like I still battle that trauma in the background, yeah. but it's also, uh, more so like curiosity, like, Hmm. And right. Like I, I've even said like, Oh, I'd love to get to 200 just to see, like, I don't care if I stay there. I would just love to get there to see what it looks like, see how I perform, see how I feel, see how I do out hunting, see how I do out hiking. Right. And, and for me, it's like, Oh, just see what it's like. And like, I, like I, I think I'm supposed to be at like 170. I think I'm supposed to be at like 170, 175. Right? I do think I, I agree. I think there is a set point. 
And I think that's mine because like, I feel like I've been like 185 and I feel like, but I was also eating atrociously, like just fat galore. I was super chunky and like my performance was terrible. Right. So to your point, like where I was still exercising and still doing everything and my performance was shit. And I was like, so there was a direct correlation for me to my weight, but it was all to eating crappy too. to, to, to like the right to the percentage of I, my body fat was the highest it ever was. So like, so for me, it was a percentage of body fat. Like I was eating, like I, I was throwing pieces of cake and protein shakes. Like it was right where now I'm eating very clean, like very clean in the sense of, right. Like if I want Oreos, I'll have Oreos, right? Like I don't see, and that's what's interesting, right? Cause we talk about the restriction and I'm sure there's something going on there psychologically for me, but if I want Oreos, I'm going to have them. Mm-hmm. But I also you absolutely still think they're think bad like, for you. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. 100%. Especially at the rate that I eat them, right? When I eat them, right? Like, because mm-hmm. I will eat a sleeve. Like, if, and that's the thing is, like, I know if I'm going to sit down and eat Oreos, I'm going to eat a sleeve. And so then mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm just not going to do that, right? Right. But so there's this aspect of, Right, like, oh, bigger body. And there's probably more bigger bodies, larger bodies that have to deal with, right, the shame of that. But also there's this aspect of being smaller. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't know what that's like, right? Because, especially as a man, I think that, yeah. right, like men get, men get a lot of shit, shit on in a lot of social situations because they're men and they shouldn't cry and they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that. Yeah. But that's a different story. But... I think that, right, like being small is bad too. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like I've even had friends say to me like, oh, like, it was funny. We were actually celebrating my friend's birthday the other day. And she, she said to me, this was the other day. And she was like, uh, like two weeks ago, she was like, oh, she's like, have you lost weight? And like that like triggered something. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, no, I didn't lose. Like, no, I didn't lose weight. Yeah, it's like, like the commenting you, on the body, it implies something, and, even if it's meant to be a compliment. Right, but, right, but, but also, like, there's also, to me, like, a point, like, where we can't be so, right, like, hesitant to, like, if you, like, to compliment on the body. I get where, like, that's going, right? But, like, if you're working out, you're... Or it's just, did you lose weight? Or are they right. just harassing a question? right. Right, right. And that's the thing is my friend was just literally my friend was just asking me and I'm the one who turned it into something. Right. But but then like it goes into the trauma. Right. Like of right. Like, fuck. Now I lost weight. Oh, they think I'm losing weight. I got to go get muscles. Right. And like and that's again because I've done the work like I noticed how I felt immediately. I was like, oh, that's silly. Can I say right? one like, quick thing just yeah. to like plug in before we go too far off? Because you yeah. said like mainly happen you, uh, for Dom, I don't know what you said specifically, but with like the underweight and males, but mm. that judgment does happen a lot in females. Um, like I know mm. many females who just like can't gain weight and they get judged. Mm. Oh, they must be have an eating disorder or exactly. this, that, and the other. There's a lot of right. judgment also. I just wanted to like plug that in before we. Right. And that's my point in saying this is that like, we're, it's so much like, oh, it's all about the obese person, the obese person losing weight. No, it's, it's all spectrums. It's any means of trying to control your body. Yeah. And not kind of just letting your body do what it does. It knows how to control your weight. It knows how to 
mm-hmm. when you're cued in. Yeah, you're like my hairdresser. So, and, and thank you for the vulnerability, Alan, honestly, because yeah, it's a sure. great example and it does need to be said. And um, yeah, there is there is that for men big time and that's what leads to all kinds of you know, performance enhancing stuff at the gym. I mean, all of that. So it's, it is absolutely there for men and in a little bit of a different way, um, straight men in any way. And, and so, um, and yeah, but to your point, Brie, my hairdresser, she's like so skinny and she wanted to gain weight and she married a bodybuilder and he was, you know, she was eating so much, like so much every day, you know, good stuff, but like healthy stuff, but, and she wasn't doing much cardio cause she's trying to gain weight and she was, you know, lifting weights and, um, and she just felt like crap all the time. And she did gain a little bit of weight, but she was just always felt so full. My point is her set point is small. It, it is what it is. So yeah, it's like, even when a person eats, people think that, a person who's in a larger body, they are that way entirely because they're eating too much and not moving enough. A person in a smaller body can eat an insane amount of food. And because their set point says, oh, no, you don't, they're going to stay right around that range. And mm-hmm. so that's, so it is the same. You're right. It's not about bigger or smaller. It's about what is behind our desire to manipulate our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and what I always say to my, my clients, you know, when we're starting to work together, because of course they want to, you know, if they're in a bigger body, of course they want to lose weight. I mean, that is what society tells them will make them feel better. And, um, and so I always ask them, you know, what will having a smaller body get you? And they say things like confidence. And the truth is, there is some power in having a smaller body. There is privilege in having a smaller body. Um, perhaps, you know, so, and, and they, they say health, but I say, what if you can be healthy and have confidence and have all of that stuff and your body doesn't change at all? Do you still want to do it? And because a lot of times that's what happens. So a lot of the people that I work with, some, like I said, sometimes their body changes, sometimes it doesn't, but their health and their psychological health changes. Mm-hmm. So they feel better. They do feel more energetic. So like Brie, when you were, you changed the way you were eating, you changed the way you were moving. Consequently, you did drop some weight. That That's the way that that happened for you. Perhaps if you hadn't dropped the weight, but you were moving a lot and you were eating in a way that felt really good with your body, perhaps you still feel better, you know? And so mm-hmm. I'm just making the point that we can't conflate, I feel better with health. And the joint thing, that's so, so common. And guess what? I have always had a small body and I have major joint issues. Like I just had my hip replaced and I'm only almost 45. Um, and so, so uh, like we forget, like people in smaller bodies have heart disease big time. People in smaller bodies have blood pressure big time. Um, heart disease, all that stuff. Um, and so, it, we, we can't be so quick to say like, you know, being in a larger body causes this. We have to look at it more globally. Um, does that so we, make sense? We, we've got off on a few tangents, right? And I believe you now answered Bree's question. Yeah, Bree. Yeah, I don't even remember. Okay. Set point and <laughs> let's see, there's, so there's set point so, and- So what about like the within reason? Like the too skinny, too fat. Right, like, 
like what's what is that? It's none of my business. It, it, do they how how do they feel? It's none of my business what they do with their body. If they want to feel better, I can help them feel better, but that's none of my business. So you're but you're saying that right if they if they feel like crap, you're saying it's it's more of what they're eating than what their body type is? Yeah. Uh, like I mean, I don't know. It, it would it would depend, you know, like so some of my clients they feel like crap because they hate their body because they grew up being told that their body sucks. Um, and so, and they feel that way when they're small. They feel that way when they're big. They lose weight. It's never small enough. Um, so, uh, so I don't know. A lot of times they feel bad because of what's going on psychologically because of their relationship with their body and their relationship with food. So they have this such a fraught relationship with food that it makes it so that they can't tune into and have a good, they can't tune into the cues that their body is giving them around food. So they override it. So perhaps that does make them not feel good. Um, mm. and, and they're, uh, disconnected from their, um, interoceptive sensitivity. Uh, and, and so it's a lot of things. It's, it's much broader than you're eating and you're not, you're eating wrong and you're not moving right. Mm -hmm. It's so much bigger than that. It, it's, it's what society says about them. It's how, about how they feel with their body. It's about the environment that they grew up in, all of that stuff. And, and the body is kind of this like catch-all. So for people who have trauma or pain, a lot of times they will put that on the body because it's this thing that they think that they can control. And, it, and it, so it ends up being this catch-all. And they think like, I feel like crap today, must be my body. And when I dig in with them, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you're way over committing. Oh, I see. It's not your body. Oh, you're not sleeping enough. Oh, I see. And you hate let's your job. Talk, let's, let's not talk about sleep, please. How's your, how's prefer, your new prefer, sleep lifestyle? Prefer, no prefer, not, prefer not to talk about sleep. <laughs> so it's usually we dig in and it's, it's just that they're dysregulated. And so we can, I can help them find a way to regulate. Um, and yeah, so. So it's like, Alan, I, I just, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not going to, I won't say is they're too big or too small because it's none of my business. Mm -hmm. it, there are ways to feel better. And, and that, that is by tuning into the wisdom of your body. And yeah. I, what I'm hearing, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast is it's like by needing to have this set point, right. Then she's like, it doesn't matter. Is like, we are so stuck and I'll be happy when. So regardless exactly. what their set point is, really is it doesn't matter because the whole point mm -hmm. is not okay I'll be happy when I hit my set point no I'll be happy now and like that's um mm -hmm. like I mean in that it, it's all coming and just I think about like with trauma and dissociation like mm. okay well then if people dissociate I'm going like I dissociate like I know mm -hmm. that's something I work on and it's like of course they wouldn't be like in tune with eating Exactly. Like if that hop, if your tendency is to dissociate, like you're not going to like recognize how your body is feeling with what you're eating. Right. So like it all comes back to like the, really the mental health piece of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to heal, you have to be present 
And to be present, you have to feel safe. If you don't feel safe, yeah, you're going to escape in your brain or escape wherever. And so like to heal, you have to be present, like to, you know, be mindful about food, to, to feel the cues of your body, you have to be present. But if it doesn't feel safe to be in your body for whatever reason, because of trauma or whatever, that, yeah, that's what needs to be repaired, you know? Yeah. Is it, I mean, beautiful, beautifully said, Brie. I think you kind of wrapped it all up. We can... <laughs> no, I mean, you just, re, you recap that really beautifully. Yeah. It was um, just like, I had all these light bulbs going. I was like, oh, I see that. Okay, that makes mm-hmm. sense. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what, what does it mean about me if my body is this certain way? And yeah, how can we disconnect from that? Mm-hmm. And, and like my, my, my clients, when we start their work, you know, if they're in a bigger body, like I said, of course they want to lose weight. And so we have to work on finding a way, you know, I'll say like, I hear you loud and clear that you want to lose weight. I get that. But we have to find a way to respect your now body. Because when we can genuinely respect the now body, then we're more inspired to nourish it and listen to it. So many people that are in larger bodies or in a body that they feel is too small, they hate it. And so they don't want to listen to it and they want to sabotage it and punish it. Um, and so, yeah, I just got, um, and sabotaging is things like, you know, um, sometimes the like binging, the what the hell binge, or like, you know, sometimes laxative use, purging, you know, whatever. Some people it gets, you know, more intense. So, so, so what would, you know, what would having, a a bigger body offer you know what would having a smaller body offer and guess what that's available in the now body mm-hmm. it just it takes work here yep, and sure. then the health piece is yes let's connect with our cues let's neutralize food so it's not like good bad food but because like when you neutralize food you really do start to crave what your body needs you're not craving oreos all the time you're just not Mm -hmm. right yeah and you're getting there it sounds like you have you've already like started to move through that for sure um so mm -hmm. so what one of the things that got us on on this and why you're here is um i was actually uh at my friend's house with their kids and I talked about, right. And you've already alluded to this, but I want I want to hear you talk a little bit more about it is like kids. And, and like, I think back to my childhood trauma of like not wanting to eat, but then like, I, here I am. So it was a very specific example. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I have, I have Lily in my, in my arms and literally I have her plate and we're walking down like the food line, right? This was a few weeks ago and we're walking down the food line and I'm like, you want, you want deer? And she's like, yeah. And so I put some deer on her plate and, I'm, and we get to like the potatoes and I'm like, you want potatoes? She's like, no. And I'm like, no, I'm going to put potatoes on your plate anyway. Right. And like, here I am probably causing her trauma, right. Without even knowing because she needs potatoes, right? Like, no, she has to right? like, she has to have a balanced meal, right? She's a kid. She doesn't know what she wants. Right. Like, and she's like, no, 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 I, and like, she's very vocal. She's like, no, no, I don't want potatoes. I'm like, Lily, like, I'm just going to put potatoes on your plate. If you don't want to eat them, don't eat them, but they're there and I want you to eat some. And then like we sit down and it's like, all right, I want you to take a bite of your potatoes. And it, right. Like, and it's even the simple things like 
like you sit down and they take three bites of food and they're like, I'm done. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need you to take five more bites of food before you're done. Right. And, and like, I forget exactly what we were talking about on the last mm-hmm. episode, but I'm like, maybe they already know. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're, we're cutting that hardwire, right. They're already hardwired to know. Mm-hmm right? What they're supposed to be eating and when they're supposed to be eating and how much they're supposed to be eating. Mm -hmm. And here we are, the dumb adults that are like, no, you don't know your body. Pushing our agenda. I need you to eat more. (laughs) Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I need you to eat more food because whatever, right? Like you need energy, you need weight, you right. You're growing, you're right. All the things. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's so interesting is like what the research shows is, you know, like if you watch a kid, yeah, one day they'll eat like a whole block of cheese and a parent is horrified because they're like, you need vegetables though. You're going to get constipated. You need, and then the next day all they'll eat is raspberries and what, you know, or whatever, you know. And so what they, what the research shows is that over about a week span, they get all of the food and nutrients that they need if we just let them explain now that's not to say you let the kids run the show and you make whatever they so there's this with there's you know intuitive eating for kids too and they're born you know knowing that how to eat intuitively but a lot of times you run into food situations with kids and they're like super picky or you know whatever and a lot of that is can be modeled or um you know a lot of that is yeah it's people pushing it too much. And so that little rebel inside of you is like, no, now I'm never going to eat lasagna because I like that was pushed on me. There's this trauma around it. It was like, eat, eat the lasagna or whatever it is, you know? Um, And so, but in general, you know, so like if you have a healthy kid who, you know, the parents haven't, um, oh, I guess, um, interjected their agenda. And I say that lovingly because I was very much that person too. Um, I had hey, to learn. Hey Jenny. Yeah. Hey, hey Jenny. Sorry. Real quick. Yeah. Do me a favor. Just make sure your microphone jack is, is in all the way. I think it sounds fine. Uh, okay. I, I keep getting a little bit of a, a feedback. Uh, so sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, oh, but okay. I keep getting a little like, like knocking and you're not hitting your mic or anything. So I just wanted to make sure that yeah. it wasn't anything. Uh, specific. Sorry. Okay. No, I just get real excited when I talk about this yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, please, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> please go. But there's, so in a, a reasonably healthy situation, there's this thing called division of labor. And so there's, you know, like the parents have responsibilities and the kids have responsibilities. And so the parents decide um, when, what, and where you know, so like the parents, they kind of provide the food. They don't make a big deal of it. And the kid decides how much and whether. So in, in your beautiful situation, the parents decided we are going to provide elk and, and potatoes. And this is what we're having today. And the kid decides how much of each of those things they want and whether they want either of those things. And, and over, and, and over time they get, they get their nutrients met. But so it's not like, you know, just let the kids eat candy and then they'll find their intuition, you know, and, and then, and that's the thing too, like with dessert, um, it's like, don't make it weird. Don't make it, you know, like my mom, she's, um, she was asking me, you know, she like, she loves this stuff now. And she's always asking me like, cause she babysits my nieces, my niece and nephews regularly. And so she was, 
you know, she, I have one nephew who is so picky. I mean, he really will hardly eat any, anything and everybody is always freaking out around it. And he gets so much attention for it. And he's the youngest. And, and, and it's, it's not to say that it's not genuine. You know, I think he really doesn't like certain things, but he gets so much attention for it. And so my mom, you know, so you, you do these negotiations. And so my mom would say, if you eat the carrots, then you can have ice cream. And, and what happens is now carrots are the bad guy and ice cream is the good guy and mm. ice cream stays urgent. And also, what if I'm not hungry for carrots right now? It teaches me to override, you know, that mm. my in- intuitive wisdom. And so that's why it like it's so important to where it's age appropriate, allow the kids to find that autonomy around um, whether and how much, you know, so. Again, like we're not having ice cream tonight. This is what, you know, what's for dinner tonight. But you get to decide um, whether you eat the potatoes or, or how much of the elk you eat, you know, or whatever. And that, that's kind of how it looks in a perfect world. And then, you know, there's ways to kind of work with that when you have kids with certain, you know, maybe they're super picky or the parents have gotten into the habit of making three different meals for all the different family members or, you know, all that stuff. So let's uh, let's just talk real quick about pickiness, right? So you you're surrounded by it, right? Like you have me as a friend, and then your husband <laughs> I know. is is ridiculous, right? Like I thought I was picky, right? Right? Randy never tried an apple until he was what 40, 41, something crazy like that, which yeah, it was always bewildering yeah. to me. Three, he but, never tried so, a banana, like or an yeah. orange, until yeah, like right. after I met him, which was yes. in his forties. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty funny. So, so yeah, yeah, so. And Does he, he like, and I well, eat very. You didn't, he, what's the follow-up? He, he and I. Does he like them now? <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. So. Oh. He he and I eat very similarly, mm-hmm. right? Like like, a salad with dressing, right? Like, or we used to, right? Like in and like a burger with with cheese, like very simple. Like so, what like what is that? Is that the is that the oh because his his I mean his like in his case his family owned a restaurant like. Mm-hmm. It's not like he wasn't privy to this food, right? Like what, like what cause, I guess what's, is there a cause to picking this? And like, does it play in this intuitive eating? Like with your nephew, right? Like Mm -hmm. your family's eating these other foods. What's going on there? Well, so with Randy, so he grew up in a restaurant and he, he really wasn't exposed to a lot of foods because his parents were pretty busy. I mean, they would go other places, but on, on the day to day, he'd show up at the restaurant, you know, for dinner and he knew he wanted steak and French fries. And so he'd just tell the cook to make him steak and French fries every single day. And so he, and there was nobody really overseeing that on a day to day basis. You see, right. he just decided. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's possible that a kid might say, I want ice cream, you know, every day. Um, that's why you need that division of responsibility when they're younger. Um, so, so with Randy, he didn't have anybody saying what, where, or whatever the other one is. He just, he, he called the show. So he just, he did, wasn't really exposed to lots of things. And with my nephew, it's been modeled for him. Um, so my sister eats, um, all kinds of foods, but my brother-in-law, he also, um, he is a, a 
picky eater. And, and I'm just saying picky because I don't want to stigmatize that. When, when there's somebody who's a picky eater, there's generally genuinely some fear around new foods. Like it really creates a lot of anxiety. And, you know, mm-hmm. I noticed like with Randy, you know, he's this adventurer and he wants to try all these new things. And, you know, usually he's way more adventurous than me. And I'll try it, you know, and I like to say I did it, but but with food, I'm like, yes, bring it on. I'll try anything. Show me the world. I just get so excited and he gets so nervous and he'll do it, but he gets really anxious around it. And, and so, um, so it's, it is, um, it is, uh, there's some fear around it. It is a little bit of an anxiety that the relationship with food has been kind of, um, impaired to some extent. And, And also then you have people like me when I met Randy, you know, I'm sitting here smugly drinking my green drink and like looking at his steak and um, I'm not that way anymore. I'm happy to report, (laughs) but I mean, I didn't know, but I thought that I was helping him. Like, I just thought I was helping him be healthy. But then, you you know, you have like people constantly commenting on it and um, it, it, it makes it hard to own the space to feel safe to explore. And, and that's the thing with being a picky eater is that your taste buds can change. You can, you know, broaden. So now, yeah, breathe, follow up. He likes bananas. Um, he likes apples. He likes salad and he used to just eat iceberg lettuce, but now he eats spinach. And, um, but, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's expanded. So it can expand, but it's the same thing with a person who, isn't in tune because they eat too much. It needs to be safe to build that food repertoire. And and if it's not safe and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. And you need the autonomy to kind of call that and, and be like, this is my body and I'm going to eat what I want to eat. And it's really nobody's business. The anxiety around being like being a picky eater, mm-hmm. the anxiety around it is is less than low, right? Or or much more than low. Like it is high. I know. Right? Like especially if like going out yeah. like to eat with friends. Mm-hmm. Like I have a comfort with with you and Randy at this point, right? Like we know. Like we always joke. Like oh, what's going to be fucked up with my food this time, right? Like it it's like the running joke. But when you're at like a business meeting or right, like, and, or, or whatever, right. You're just out with a group of people and like the anxiety is, are they going to fucking put cilantro on this? Because I will literally throw up, right. Like, Mm -hmm. cause right. Like I, the, the, so the anxiety around being a pick eater, like I wish I could just order a damn salad with avocado and, and eat it. Right. And, and like, that's the thing is, Oh, just, just eat it. You can't taste it. Like that's the thing I heard all my life. Mm. And like, I fucking hate that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and like, that's the one thing like, I swear I'll never do to my kids is right. Like, Oh, just eat that. You can't taste it. And my response was always, if you can't fucking taste it, why is it in my food? <laughs> right. And, and yes, I can fucking taste it. That's why I don't like it. Right. Like I'm telling you specifically that I don't like it. Right. And like, and then it's always been this, like, even my, my wife's done this to me. Like, like people secretly try to put shit in my food mm-hmm. and like not tell me about mm-hmm. it. And like, and then they'll act like I don't notice. Right. Like, or like, I'll be like, Oh yeah, there's onions in this. Like, Cause I hate, I hate onions. Mm-hmm. And so like, you can't sneak an onion past me. I promise you. Like people have tried. That would be a hard so, one to sneak past. <laughs> you would think. That would be a really strong flavor. Dude. And like the texture it, is like very distinct. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know oh, how yeah. you would try to sneak. That's like, 
Not the rookie move. Because it really is. And like, <laughs> yeah. it, and, and, but it's fuck. It's it, like, it's one, it's frustrating, but two, the anxiety that comes with it. It's like, and like, even, you know, and like, I've, I've choked down some food. And like mm-hmm. even my and, and even this is where like you know my wife's good like she's acknowledged like we I remember one time we went and ate with her grandparents and they served it was like laden full of onions and it was like the hardest meal of my life mm-hmm. and and I and like they're one of those people that like you have to clear the plate type of thing right yeah which is which is another thing right like mm-hmm. tough and and like I'm like hey, oh it's great. Right. And like eating just this onion filled food. And um, so like the anxiety for for being a picky eater, it Mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. Right. And it right. Like, so I get it. Like I can I can't speak to Randy specifically, but like even like trying new foods like there's it's funny because like there's times where I'll be like, oh, I I do want to try something new today. But then there's times where it's like, nope, I just want a steak and a potato. Right. I, I am not in an adventurous mood. I don't want to try it. Yeah. Like, right, like, no, just give me the thing that I know that I like and, and I want. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, and so. My, it's interesting. Like, my dad eats the same thing for every meal. But it's not, like, there. I, I don't, he doesn't, I don't think there's an anxious, like, a fear of new foods. He just, his relationship to food is pure fuel. So it's like, like, this is what I eat for breakfast. My mom will make you know, chicken, whatever seasoning or variation of that chicken, Mm -hmm. he'll have that. He'll have the same amount of broccoli, the same number of nuts. Like he looks at it and like, actually, as he's gotten older, like he'll be like, Oh sure. I'll have one like piece of this pie that we ordered after a dinner or something, you know, but it's just, he's like you, if you didn't know him, you'd be like, he's a picky eater because he eats, you'd see him as like, he just eats the same thing, but it's really just his relationship to food is not one Mm -hmm. of, he's not seeking pleasure or this like, Oh, I really want this taste or flavor. or I want to try something new. And like, there's, it's really just, it's interesting. Um, It works for him. It's full. It's all, it's fully functional. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Cause like we, we are primed as humans to enjoy eating. I mean, it, it is supposed to be pleasant because it is so integral to our survival. You know, it's kind of like, mm. you know, nurturing is supposed to be pleasant. There's things that can interfere with that. But for the most part, nurturing is, you know, and bonding is supposed to pe- feel pleasant. Sex is supposed to feel pleasant. Again, there's things that can interfere with that. But um, but these things that are really integral to our survival, they are pleasant for a reason. And so... I'm always just, you know, and I mean, Brie, I don't know what, what's, it doesn't matter what's going on with, you know, it sounds like that works for him and that's fine. No big deal, you know. Um, but it did make me think about this idea of like, we, we can enjoy our, our food and, you know, eat in a way that's enjoyable and feels good to our body. And, and there's some good research that shows that people that eat for pleasure actually eat a, a wider variety of food. And so, um, and also people who eat for pleasure don't necessarily eat more of the like, you know, forbidden foods than people who are more like controlled eaters or, or rigid eaters. Um, and so it, it's and it's kind of like I just did this post on Instagram um, and 
it's like, so in France, you know, people, they spend so much less time thinking about what to eat, but they spend a lot of time sitting there at the table eating it. Um, I'm not, or, or just you kind of Europe in general, you know, they just spend a lot more time sitting there eating the food and, and kind of enjoying the food. And, and it's not even just the food, it's the experience that comes along with the food. And there's this idea that food is comforting and, and it is supposed to be. And, and we sort of pathologize that, like eating for comfort is this bad thing, but it's, food is so grounding and it's so comforting and, and that's okay, you know? And eating for comfort is not the same as, you know, like if you're cued into your body, you know, you can eat for comfort and, and, and it does soothe, you, you know, like it's like soup in the winter and, you know, um, I don't know, uh, you know, fruit in the summer and, you know, just that kind of natural desire for that, that soothing, you know, experience. I I wonder if that's been researched with the, um, the length of time. That was actually one of the feedback I gave you and Randy when you went to Italy. It was like, be prepared for a long dinner, right? Like, Oh yeah, I know. Right. But, But like, I wonder if there's maybe you know the answer to this or maybe you don't, but like when you go to Italy and you sit down for dinner, it's a two and a half hour process. And, but you go through salad, you go through pasta, you go through a meat dish, right? Like you go through all of this and then maybe like, is it that we've uh, uh, Westernized Americanized these meals so much that like it, right. Cause that's done over this two and a half hour period. Right. Is it now, Right. When you get to America, you're still eating all those things, but in 45 minutes. Oh. And is that a problem? And mm. is that a problem? I right. Wonder. Like, like the hunger right, trigger. So that- like, I wonder if the slower you eat less because you're get the, like the full cues versus like a five minute lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That right. mindfulness piece is definitely a part of, um, intuitive eating, you know, like where does your mind go when you're eating and, and, and that's, you know, a lot of times what I'll do with my clients is um, I'll ask them if they can be present for, you know, one whole meal. And for a lot of people, that's like, you know, like put away the phone for a whole meal. That's like asking for their firstborn. And so I'll say, okay, you know, and I'm not going to make them do what they don't want to do. I'm, you know, but I say, can you be present for like a couple bites in the beginning or a couple bites in the end? Or can you, before you eat, pause and just like take a breath and like look at the food and just kind of marvel at like, this is going to go in my body and it's going to do some pretty cool stuff and just take a moment to just consider that, you know, I mean, it sounds like for you do a little bit of like conscious eating um, or you you said that you have a conscious relationship with your food and I wonder if it's along those lines, but um, anyway, yeah, just kind of being with your food and she tried making me chew my th- food for 30 bites this last episode. Oh, yeah. And what I, are I've the been, sensory cues? Yes. <laughs> what's funny is I haven't changed to the 30 bites, Brie, but, like, I noticed that, like, I'll chew it, like, twice and swallow. I'll be like, I'll be like, I'll be like, chomp, chomp, gulp. It's like uh, the uh, the uh, the owl with the Tootsie Pop. Like, how many yeah. words? Like, oh. one, two, three, crunch. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's it's cute. funny oh, when you become aware of that, like, because I even know, like, it I can't really choose, is. like, not everything I do for 30, but I've, like, just been more, like, connected to, like, how much I'm, and I see when I'm, like, in one of those days where I'm, like, wow, I literally inhaled that, like, you're inhaling it, mm-hmm. like, that came from literally. somewhere, because, like, yes. you're not chewing it, you're, like, breathing it down, mm-hmm. <laughs> just swallowing <Yeah>. it whole. <laughs> it's so funny, because I've been so much more conscious of it since we talked, yeah. and, you, and you said it, like, again, I haven't changed it, it's just now I'm like, fuck, like, I think I chewed that bite, like, three times and swallowed it, like, that was awful. <laughs> Well, there's so much that happens that like in the mouth, like our digestion starts in the mouth. And so that's really like what, like we've evolved so far from like that part of the process. Um, I've just listened to a lot of, and read a lot on like, even just coming down to like oral hygiene and things like that, but just the simple. And I think we talked on our episode about like the structure of the face has evolved because we're not chewing Mm-hmm. Um, as much. Yep. Jaws have sunken in. We were higher rates of sleep apnea. It's in the book Breathe um, by James Nestor, mm-hmm. right, which we've talked about before, and, right? Mm-hmm. A, a lot has changed because of the fact that we don't chew our food and and we don't have foods that we chew, right? So it's not even that we don't chew the food. It's a lot of our foods have gone soft, right? So we're eating, our diets have become so much softer and it's changing the, the structure of our our face, our jaws, our, our airways and everything. And it's, and it's affecting people. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But it's like we chew cause it's part of the breakdown process. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, there's a lot that can like when you're taking in like big chunks. Right. And I don't, I'm far from like, yeah, I just know the very small amount of that piece of, but it also, I think has to, it seems like it probably, connects back to like time too so we start to get the signals we're more in tuned with the signals of like being full versus you finish Mm -hmm. something in five minutes and you set Mm -hmm. your plate right like you've finished it in five minutes Mm -hmm. and i bet even to the point where oh you have more time maybe i should eat more versus like taking that same amount eating it over 20 minutes, I don't know, just mm-hmm. throwing out numbers and seeing what you're feeling as you're eating it. And then also like, am I full now? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. One thing, one thing we talked about Brie in a prior episode and we have, and you brought it up Jenny, um, but we haven't talked about it here yet is the socioeconomic. And I think that that plays a big portion into time and then food availability, mm-hmm. right? Like when, right, what are you eating, right? Because we talked about your friend from India, right? Uh, for, that, was such, that was like one of our first episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget exactly what was available or wasn't available. But it was veg- the vegetarian conversation was like, yeah. Yeah. So it, socioeconomic, I, I, like when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that has to be a huge part of it. Because also when you look at the rates and like, rates of like diabetes in, in countries in like third world countries and, and even obesity rates, right? Like you think that if obesity comes with intake of higher calories and in these third world countries where they're, they're poor, it's not necessarily the case that they're, they're over consuming calories. It's like the stress the too. Yeah. And the yeah, yeah, so, quality of food. Yeah. Right. The quality of food. But then like mm-hmm. if, if you are, right? Like let's just say blue collar worker, 
right? Running machines, right? Like you're given this 30 minute window to, to eat, but it's a 30 minute window to get off of your job, go get your lunch, go make your lunch, prepare your lunch, right? Whatever it is, right? Eat your lunch, consume your lunch, and then get back to your job. Yeah. Versus like, you know, I'll just use me as an example because I can speak to that, right? Like I, I'm in a very, you know, fortunate job where if I want to take an hour and a half lunch, I'm going to take an hour and a half lunch. And, you know, I'm not constrained and I'm not, you know, looking at my plate of food and like that example you were saying, Brie, that, and be like, shit, I have 10 minutes to eat this. I need to get this all down so then I can get back to work. So I think the yeah. socioeconomic status yeah. absolutely plays a huge role. And there's lots of research on the the experience of having agency over your life. Um, and so that play also speaks to, you know, being in a, in a job where you, you kind of show up and you, you're kind of told what to do and you don't get a lot of say so, and you have to do it. And, and there's this, and you're not always treated great. Um, and, and it's the same situation with, you know, your, the example from the third world country, I think is, is what you're saying, but this feeling of not having agency over your life. And so regard, you know, independent of the food that you, yes, broccoli has more nutritional value than ramen noodles. Like that's not, you know, I'm not debating that, but independent of that, there's this other factor, you know, when you feel like you have agency over your life that contributes to overall health, physical and mental health. Um, yeah. And it speaks to our privilege. I wanted to hit on one more thing before we go off too far, just with the, you know, mindful eating, you know, sometimes we eat real quickly and sort of ravenously. And sometimes that's more of a product of not eating regularly enough. So we have gone beyond pleasant hunger and into sort of ravenous hunger and our body's like, okay, you're, you're not listening to me. Get out of the way. I'm taking over here. And we think that it's like us making this conscious choice to like, uh, you know, but really it's like our body is like, okay, you haven't nourished me all day adequately. And now, or in sometimes that happens, you know, if you're doing like an endurance event or something like that, you know, you're like ravenously hungry. And sometimes that's kind of the way it happens. Um, the, the eating, you know, so a lot of my clients, you know, they like don't eat breakfast and kind of eat lunch. And then at dinner, they're like, why am I eating so terribly? And when we have to like break it down, like you have to eat throughout the course of the day. Cause by then it's, ravenous hunger and that's where also that comes in the play of having the chips in the cupboard right because if the chips are in the cupboard by the time you get to that Mm -hmm. what are you going to do are you going to pull out the chicken and cut it up and marinate it and cut up the vegetables or are you going to open the cupboard door grab the pre-made chips that are ready to go crack open the bag and finish the bag Mm -hmm. of chips yeah your body's like uh I need carbs. Like, get out of my way. I need carbs. Fast, easy right. carbs. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you talked for a long time. I know. It's <laughs> funny. I have, like, a question, but I'm like, gosh, it's two hours. And speaking no. of food, I we're getting past my dinner time. <laughs> yeah, you got to eat your, to your eat pleasant late. hunger. <laughs> Brie, I have, like, three hours until my dinner time. I know. Yeah. I have, like, oh, like this is very so, intuitive well, eating question, though. Go that for it. Is, and we'll, I, we'll wrap up after yeah, this. Yeah, I'll try to make And I've asked 
I've talked about it on the on like one of our first few episodes was um I it was like right at the start of the pandemic and I was like got back from Argentina um and I was by myself all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I was eating like I had from like Trader Joe's those dark chocolate peanut butter cups mm-hmm. and I would have like one or two like after dinner I was like eating a lot of like dried fruit and just overall I was eating like a lot more sugar and I was craving it like I just felt I was like that was like satiating whatever was like driving my hunger um and I was eating relative because in Argentina uh the place I stayed was vegan and then we so when we left down I was like locked down there so we were eating predominantly Mm. vegan we would go get and I typically eat I'm a meat eater I eat like all meats um and I we would get some like cheese for like and like I just felt like I need more fats like whatever so when I got back I didn't know when I was gonna leave for Wyoming where I was staying. So I didn't want to like stock up on a lot of food and things like that. So I was like still kind of eating like a little vegetarian, whatever, but I was like, had all of these, like, it was like sugar, like dried fruit again, chocolate. I go to my friends when I, on my way to moving to Cody and he was like, has a bunch of wild game. I like, we were eating meat for like, you know, just lots of meat. And I went to go take a bite of that chocolate and I, it didn't satisfy, like it didn't give me what it gave me like for the few weeks leading up to it. And so that's what I'm like very Mm. curious about is like, I needed like chocolate wasn't the answer. There was something else that I was like, or sugar Mm -hmm, wasn't the mm -hmm. answer, but there was something else my body was missing that then Mm -hmm. got it from the wild game. I'm guessing, which then made me be like, I don't even like, I don't want this box of chocolates anymore. And Mm -hmm. so that's like what I think can be confusing as to like what, Mm -hmm. like with, and obviously like you don't have to go into like if you have like a snippet of that can explain like how do we decipher between what like our body's calling for and like the chocolate versus the wild game. I had no idea. Right. Until I experienced that contrast so close together mm-hmm. and that yeah. probably happens to people who are like, Oh, I'm craving this mm-hmm. sweets. Like that's an easy I'm craving thing. Chocolate. I'm craving mm-hmm. Oreos, but like, is yeah. your body craving Oreos or is it really yeah. like, that's what your mind goes to and it's really needing something else and that will i don't know satiate Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. i've heard like when you hear like you're craving chocolate you're craving magnesium and you you get a ton of magnesium in wild game but Mm -hmm. i would love to hear your thoughts on that jenny yeah so um so there is a principle of intuitive eating that's called gentle nutrition and it's like you know after you go through you know neutralizing and normalizing food and repairing your relationship with food it is like okay we you know can we add a little bit of protein to this and you know if you're vegetarian obviously there's ways to do that and i know that neither of you are but you know for the people that are there's there's ways to do that can we you know and 
you know, it's kind of like queuing in, like I'm feeling a little lethargic, um, or I'm feeling, um, like I haven't had much fiber today. Can I add this to my dinner? You know, so it's not always like intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay between instinct, emotion, and thought. And so the thought piece is the, is the part that there is nutritional information out there that that is valid and it's worth bringing into our repertoire. And so for, for you, you know, it's all about kind of being curious and non-judgmental. So you learned something in that situation and you learned like, Oh, huh. Um, I, I do a little better when I have plenty of, um, complete protein, you know, like I have plenty of this and then, and the, the whole, um, you know, just really craving like dried fruit and carbs. And, you know, if, if we were working together, which I know you have a, a you know, reasonably healthy relationship with food, but, you know, I, I would always go through, you know, what are people eating throughout the course of the day? Like, what does their eating look like? It, it, how regular is it? Because sometimes that craving for carbs is simply because they're not having enough carbs. And I know you said you're having plenty, but I don't know how regularly. And, um, and so it's somewhere in between there. And sometimes when you're stressed, there it, it is comforting to eat simple carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not the same as gluttony, but it is okay to be comforted by that. And that was like the whole pandemic time. It was like a really stressful time. And, and carbohydrates do create a bit of a, a calming effect. And that might have been psychologically what you were yearning for. I don't know. So... So does that kind of answer your question? Of course, you know, it's complex and I would need to dig in yeah. specifically, but it's like, well, I it's, think it's what like you, learning. Yeah. What mm-hmm. you said is like you introduce things. How does that, yeah, interact and yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, you notice, hmm, I'm feeling a little lethargic or I'm pretty like fight or flight lately. How can I regulate my, what's going on here? You know, you kind of cue in and, and you learn to ask yourself questions to, you know, determine like, do I need to move more? Do I need to eat different? Do I need to add a little bit more of this now? And, you know, and, and, and a lot of times like I'll get a really, really clear craving for protein or a really clear craving for, you know, a carbohydrate, but it, it isn't always like that. Sometimes it's like mm-hmm. nothing sounds good at all. And I just need to yeah. make some food, good food choices, you know, like things that I know generally make my body perform reasonably well. Mm-hmm. So I guess have I at least debunked for you that intuitive eating is about just letting go and eating cupcakes and Oreos all day? For sure. Okay, good. For sure. Before, <laughs> before, before, we, before we wrap up a little bit, I, I do want to cover just one more key thing I, I think is critical because right, it's what you do and right. If people are listening and maybe they're intrigued, but like, what does this process look like? Cause you've, mm-hmm. you've mentioned a few things you've mentioned like habituating and right. Like all these, like, like I'm hearing multiple steps and again, right. We're in this world where we want instant gratification and I don't feel like we're going to get instant gratification in this process. Right. So what is, what does this process look like? What's mm-hmm. the time period? How long do your clients typically work with you? And, Like, how long does it take to habituate food? Like, how long does it take to realize, oh, yeah, no, I have a little guy in there telling me that Oreos are bad, right? Like, 
what does that look like? Mm -hmm. If you could talk to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I always do an assessment at the beginning and that helps me understand where to start with people because everybody is different, you know, their relationship with food is different. And so, um, so I always, you know, so sometimes I'll start with, um, you know, the making peace with food. Sometimes I'll start with, you know, teaching them to hear their hunger cues. Sometimes I have to start with finding some space to respect the now body so we feel motivated to nourish it. But what it looks like is that um, the the goal is that I, um, I guide people back to the wisdom of their body. And so if they feel like they're, um, like they're always obsessing about food or they're in a lot of pain about their body, or maybe they are really healthy, but they're spending so much energy being healthy, you know, where maybe they could reallocate some of that energy to some of the things that really bring their life joy. You know, I can help them find that peaceful relationship with food and their body. And, um, and so if people work with me, I have, a um, a 12 session package and a 24 session package. And so depending on, you know, how a person is and their, um, you know, a lot of people already have some intuition and they already have some insight. And so a lot of times we can get through it in 12 weeks and they have the, the tools really built in and the process is a lifelong process. Like you just get more and more free to be in your body you 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 get more and more of that and it gets more and more joyful and that happens for the rest of your life um but when you're done with me you have the tools to keep making that happen now some people um you know it's it's more complicated and we work together longer sometimes it is uncovering um some like working with some of the trauma and regulating the nervous system first and so we have to do you know lots of um First, you know, regulating and then teaching them to sort of um, be present. And then we can say, now let's learn about the cues. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to um, learn more about the service, um, then you can just go to www.jennybilski-smith.org and I'll spell that. So www.jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, Bilski, B-I-L-S-K-I-E, hyphen, Smith, S-M-I-T-H, dot org. Um, and I have all kinds of blogs. I have lots of stories from other clients um, and, uh, and information about a little bit more about the process. Awesome. And where can they find you on social media? Instagram, Facebook? Yeah. So I, I, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So it's uh, at Jenny underscore Bilski underscore Smith. So that's my Instagram. And then I have a private and free Facebook group where um, the idea is that it's a little bit more of a, a vulnerable space and more of a supportive space where people can kind of share something. Hey, I ran into this. And, you know, sometimes people get sick of hearing from me. And so like they can ask each other and you know, kind of play off of each other. That's the idea. Um, and that's um, intuitive eating, food, freedom and body peace on Facebook, mm-hmm. that group. Awesome. Very cool. Jenny, it's been 
awesome having you on. I feel like it's been forever since we've seen each other too. So I know, uh, too it's long. Great, great seeing you. Um, I agree. Bree, you have anything else? You want to wrap us up with breath yeah. and journal prompt? Journal prompt. Then and breath, one or? thing I want to say, just because I feel like I was like, I don't have food stuff. I feel like this can benefit anyone, right? Like it's not just. You're right. Right. Like I think that's Thank an important you. thing to drive home is like, I'm very curious about it and connected, but like, I'm not, what is perfection with your relationship to food, you know? And so I think there's so much insight that it sounds like you can get, um, because you might not even realize where your, um, have weird nuances Mm -hmm. or what, you know, with your own relationship to food. So, um, yeah, like intimacy improves your ability to, yeah, just get like sensory pleasure improves, you know, just like, you know, enjoying what you're hearing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's great. Thank you for pointing that out, um, mm-hmm. Brie, cause you're, you're right. It's, it is for everyone and all of us get a little disconnected at some point, mm-hmm. no matter how good we are at, you know, tuning into our body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, you have a, like, um, I usually do a breath, but I was going to say, if you have, oh. do you have like a short, some type, I don't know, it could be like a short meditation or breath or like intuitive eating thing that you'd want to guide our listeners through? Yeah. As well, oh. as well, because I know you journal too, you're a big journaler. Like if you have like a journal prompt to share with them as well, mm-hmm. like maybe something you share with clients, that would be great. And it could be a combo, okay. like maybe it's a two yeah. for one. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yes. I have both of those. Um, and thank you, Brie, for allowing me to lead it. It yeah. is an honor and I love it. I do this. So I'm going to do my favorite, um, breathing exercise. And, um, and this is, uh, an exercise that is designed to create joy. So if you're feeling kind of bummed, it can kind of elevate your mind state to a place of joy and, and, um, I'm going to have you do some things with your face and I'm going to close my eyes. I'm not watching you. I know we're on camera. It's basically just have you smile, but there's, you know, these messages between the musculature and our face and our body. So it's all going to kind of work together. So, all right. So if you're comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes and you don't like to close your eyes. No worries. You can just gaze downward and Know that my eyes are closed, so I'm not staring at you. Let's just start by bringing our attention to our breath. Just notice the breath as it comes in, and you can say silently to yourself in, and you can say silently to yourself out, noting the breath. Next exhale, just allow the muscles in your forehead to release. And then the next exhale, the muscles in your jaw to release. Then your neck and your shoulders. Now feel your body in the chair. Feel where your body connects with the chair. 
You can open your eyes and peek at me. I'm gonna have you do something with your hands. So you're gonna take your right pointer finger and put it underneath your left collarbone. And then your left pointer finger, put it underneath your right collarbone. So you're doing kind of like a butterfly over your heart. And just notice how the space underneath your hands expands kind of subtly. And then shrinks. And now I want you to imagine that there is a ball in the center of your chest, right around where your heart is. And this ball is, it can be your favorite color, or it can be like the sun. I like to picture the sun, but you pick which one works for you. And as you inhale, imagine that ball getting bigger right around your heart. And as you exhale, imagine it deflating. over and over. And then just bring a gentle smile to your lips and I'm gonna be quiet for a moment and allow you to experience the sensation of that beautiful ball getting bigger in your chest and then smaller right along with the breath. Then you can drop your hands to your lap. Wiggle your fingers and toes just a little bit and whenever you're ready, go ahead and open your eyes. All right, a little, little joy neurobiology there. That was awesome, yeah, thank, thank you. you, Jenny. Yeah, thank you, that's one of my favorites. and. And for a journal prompt, I would say um, write about what you appreciate that your body does for you. Nothing about the way that it looks. What do you appreciate that it does for you? I love that. That's beautiful. Well, it's been real. Yeah, Thank thanks so much so for much, having me. Jenny. Yeah, it's been great having you on. Bree, it was, it's a pleasure as yeah. always. Yeah, it's good to meet you, Bree. Yeah. Me too. Thanks for taking time right. out of your day. Of course. All right. You guys All have right. a great evening. Yep. Happy Mother's Day See if that you. applies. Yes. See you. All right. Bye. Bye.